I like being on the margins. I like hovering on the horizon in my little gleam. So I did my work and it was very, it was celebrated and received in a lot of times by people far from the faith world. That was really the first time where I felt seen in that intersection of my deep faith and my love of Jesus and my mission, which is to create stories that will lead me into the world outside the church and bring me into the hearts and minds, my stories into the hearts and minds of kids like me who were not growing up inside the church. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Mitali Perkins has always thought of herself as an outsider writing for outsiders, and yet she has a remarkable gift for inviting people in. She has two new books out, Hope in the Valley is a middle grade novel, and Holy Night and Little Star is a picture book for Christmas. Mitali Perkins, I am so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great to be back talking with you. Yeah, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, your uh, latest book is Holy Night and Little Star, A Story for Christmas, a beautiful picture book about the um, the star that shone over Bethlehem. Um, and and not, was it October that Hope in the Valley came out? Was it that recently? No, no it's, it's been July. It's been, it was out in July. July, so. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so let's see where, where to start. Let's, I'd love to start with hope in the Valley. Um, yeah. Tell us what, what's your little pitch for this book? When people ask you what that book's about, what do you tell them? It's about change. It's about, uh, and both of the books actually are feature characters that are resistant to change. Mm, yeah. One is, yeah. One is a picture book. One's a middle grade novel, but I've had adults, um, read the book and hopefully it'll cross it crosses over to adults as well it's it's um a bit of a memoir in that it's about a girl growing up in in the bay area the san francisco bay area uh in the 1980s and so it's a time of great change in silicon valley silicon valley was moving from being called the valley of heart's delight where orchards flourished and people came from all over to see the fruit and the flowers uh, to becoming the Silicon Valley sprawl that we know today. The uh-huh. land was changing. And so here we have a girl, Pandita Paul, who's 12 going on 13, which I know that you know as a parent, especially of girls, that is a time of uh, great change. Yeah. Two older sisters, um, like I did. She didn't want to grow up. I did not want to grow up. <laughs> and she pens a lot of poetry. She goes across the street to an orchard, an old orchard, an apricot orchard, and she pens poetry and letters which is what I did. So, in mm-hmm. fact, in the book, I got to co-write with 12-year-old Mitali and mm-hmm. put the poems that I wrote when I was 12 into the story. So, um, so she's a lot like me, quiet, um, introspective, re- reads a ton, um, and does not want to grow up. And yet, so the, the land itself is changing, and the girl in the story is also, you can't stop time. In fact, she writes a poem called The Thief of Time because she so wants to go back to uh, earlier years, but she can't. And the town, too, is clinging to the past, but has to move to the future as well. Yeah. Did uh, The Thief of Time, is that a Little Matali uh, poem? Yes. It yeah. is. It's, John, it's funny because here I am, an immigrant from India, right? And I grew up in California. And so I wrote this really dramatic poem called Ode to a Winter Tree. And I, I never grew up with winter trees. <laughs> <laughs> But it was this just this idea that 
the sad time when you had to let go of all your blossoms and your foliage. <laughs> I know. And, you know, here I am at the stage of life now where I am getting, I mean, my blossoms and foliage are leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a sweet poem to think about uh, writing that when you're 12 and reading that now is at this stage of life. <laughs> um, tell me about <clears throat> what it's like to to go back to to poems that you wrote when you were that little and and um was it cringy or was it just did you have a lot of compassion for 12 or 13 year old Matali? I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that it was in this old notebook i think what it did is it brought me back into the moment of actually writing the poetry and feeling those emotions and you know the stress of immigrant life and mm-hmm. all the ways that stories and words were strengthening me and giving me solace and my own words and the words I was taking in from other other writers, uh, that's how I survived that crazy time when our mm. family, my parents were refugees, started life here, uh, fresh off the boat. They were from the village, you know, educated, but from the village. Yeah. So there's a lot of tension in our home. And the the stories, the words gave me so much solace that it actually gave me solace again reading that, reading them. I'm, of course, they're cringy. You know, that yeah. my poetry today is cringy. <laughs> <laughs> So, but it's interesting because my voice, I even wrote little stories back then. And voice is something, you know, we've both taught writers. Mm-hmm. Voice is something that you can't really teach. Yeah. Something that, and and I had my same voice, my same authorial voice mm. with those in that early work as today. It's It was very similar. So it's weird. I, you know, decades. That is of, so interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Yes. And compassion, but more, it was weird because I felt more like little Mitali was giving compassion into old Mitali. Really? Yeah, like that way instead of. What the does that way. mean? What do you mean when you say that? Just as I said, the solace of the poetry and the words mm-hmm. and the play. You know, when you're a professional writer as I am, um, you can lose the freshness of it. It's a, mm-hmm. it's my job. It's my full time job. Yeah. So, and you know, all those voices of uh, the adult voices that get in your head about. Um, all the opposition to your writing, you know, that comes mm-hmm. in your head. Well, I didn't have that back then. I just yeah. had words and play and stories and poetry and the solace that it gave me to create. Um, so in that way, I felt that little Matali was offering me that invitation again to come back to the roots of my love of writing, my love of words and and the great joy it gives me when I, when I find the right word. In the story, she's changing one word. Um, and she's toying with just one verb and one noun. I did that back then. Mm-hmm. And so I understood the weight of one noun and one one verb. And, and so it gave me sort of a call to play again mm-hmm. uh, with the with the craft. So that's yeah. how it, it was compassionate. Yeah. Do you know how it was that you as a person that young um, knew to be literary? I mean, you said your parents were educated. Were they reading a lot of books to you? Well, or were, I mean, you, like, or were you unusual for your family? My father was a great storyteller. And we've talked about that last time about oh, yeah. that legacy of storytelling. Yeah. Um, he was hilarious, Jonathan. He he had us laughing. There would be some catastrophe in our house, like I don't know, some the heater would flood. And you know, within five minutes, we were all just you know, that shared belly laugh that you get when you're yeah. with kin or with good friends. We were just so laughter was was a great and um connector for our family. But it was basically because of my dad's stories. Uh, so, and then he told stories of his childhood. They were all mythical stories about 
near-death experiences with crocodiles and cobras and um, <laughs> you know, things. But we were always enthralled. And then he had us memorize poetry. So we memorized the great works of, he would, he loved Wordsworth. So, uh -huh. you know, I, he had us, when people would come to our house, he would have me stand on a little stool and recite, I wandered lonely. And I had a little <laughs> British accent then, as a cloud that floats on high. I mean, we, it, he loved that. But also Rabindranath Tagore, who is our uh, um, Nobel laureate poem, poet from Bengal. Oh my goodness, dad loved his words. And he would recite poetry all the time. So yeah, that, but then we didn't have many books because as I said, my parents lost everything in the war. So it was mm -hmm. always like, oh, uh, go to library, go to library. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I would go every every week, seven books. And that was the limit back then. Yeah. And um, my, I think my parents knew early on I started reading early. I, I think they sensed early on that I loved reading. So my father would make it a point to take me to the library and my sister because they could see what joy it gave me. But mm. as a career, you know, that was not their dream for me. Yeah, right. Writer. But, you know, you know, of course, they became so proud of me now. But, um, yeah, but it was just clear that I was drawn to words from age of three yeah on i loved words i just loved both bangla words and english words yeah how many languages were you speaking when you were little well bangla bengali is our mother tongue and um it's actually the i think it's the fourth most commonly spoken mother tongue in the world because uh -huh. there's many of us in the diaspora as well bangladesh and west bengal and it's a beautiful language it has a lot of rich literary tradition in fact the stereotype for bengalis in India is that we love to sit around, tell jokes and write sad poetry. That That's sort of our stereotype uh, because we've done a lot of that. The national anthem of India is in, is in Bangla. You know, there's 26, I think, major languages in India different. So Bengali was one. And then, you know, I lived all around the world. So I learned very quickly. One of the things about being a lover of words and not being scared of them is that it leads you into other languages with a lot of grace and lack of fear. So every everywhere I go, and maybe it's my father, I love to make people laugh because it's my fun, it's my way to connect. Yeah. And so I I don't I'm not afraid to be become a fool, become the court jester, you know, like <laughs> and make up like you know, say just so I can say, you know, where's the bathroom in 10 different languages. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like just to be lost and to ask questions and to get other people to teach you children, you know, get children to teach you their language yeah. so that you can them laugh and giggle at you that is so fun for me so i can say i can speak a lot of different i can speak like you know little little bits in lots of different languages but bangla english and spanish are my three that I can okay speak. how do uh how do bangla and spanish do do those languages affect the way you write english and talk and speak english that is a great question I was thinking before our podcast, I just was on another podcast. I heard myself speak and I thought, I speak so quickly. So I was yeah. telling myself, Jonathan has a nice slow cadence. <laughs> you slow down, lady, because I talk a mile a minute. Um, <laughs> I just talk so fast. I could be an auctioneer, Jonathan. Sold, sold. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm, I think that I think quickly in my brain and mm -hmm. words... I think my probably gets me in trouble because my brain is in my language part of my brain is in my mouth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always good, but uh, but the the Spanish and the Bangla, 
The Spanish is interesting. It's here I'm in California. So mm -hmm. speaking Spanish is a huge advantage. And I'm brown. So I look like I should be able to speak it well. And I have a good accent because I learned it as a child. We lived in Mexico a couple of years. Uh -huh. so I start speaking and then I quickly run out of words. And so the little abuelitas will be like, ¿Por qué olvidas tu lengua? Why have you forgotten your language? And they're always like, oh, de la India, but you speak Spanish well. And then I get the little kudos, you know. So, yeah, I think there's a cadence to Bangla that's very sing-song and very fast. Mm. And I'm sure that affects my spoken English because, I, yeah, usually I have to speed up podcasts, you know, because... It's slow for me. So I was listening at 1.75. 1.75. I well, listen to audio. I get nothing. I probably retain nothing at that yeah, speed. Right. But it sounds so slow to me. And you know, when I'm in, I was just in Nashville and I was like, wow, people take a long time. <laughs> people take a long time to say what they need to say down here. Yeah. Which is really sweet. It's good for me to slow yeah. it down. So I yeah. love it. Well, okay. So um, it's so interesting to think, you know, there, there are there are memoir memoirish elements to Hope in the Valley, and you're writing on the, you know, you're sitting in. Do you live in Silicon Valley? Is that where you live, County Silicon Valley? I live in the East Bay. Silicon Valley is the South Bay, but I okay. went to college. I went to college down there. Yeah. So. It's only about 45 minutes away. Yeah. So, you know, on the other side of all that change as you're describing, both geographically and personally, and and um, and you're looking back on this. I mean, that that uh the Valley of Hearts Delight is just such a beautiful name. And just I just want to go there. <clears throat> and it's it's such a that's such a story of California. This, you know, this thing that used to be orchards and and bees buzzing around and now is is you know so built up right and um, so the the inciting incident in that book is that beautiful orchard where she would go to write letters to her mother who's no longer on earth um is the, the inciting incident is that her sister who works for an affordable house who volunteers for an affordable housing nonprofit, um comes rushing in to her birthday dinner to pandita's birthday dinner and says guess what great news the the orchard across the street is going to be demolished and put on sale. And see, her family doesn't know that she's been sneaking in there. Mm. To they don't know. It's her secret place. Yeah. And so she's just devastated. Like this space she used to go and meet with her mom and write letters is now going to be gone. And so there's a historical preservation society that wants to save the land and the orchard because of the beautiful history of California's orchards. And so Pandita says, decides to join with them to try to see. So now her sister and her are on opposite sides because they want to see some affordable middle-class housing on yeah. that land, right? And yeah. it, it's, it taps into the roots of our problem here in California where cities and towns didn't think about how we would need that kind of housing. Yeah. Um, so um, so it's a little bit of that. But then um, it's Pandita's, the front of the book has a picture of her with her bray hair and braids. And that's mm -hmm. her signature hairstyle, right? She wears her hair in a braid. And I didn't know what the theme of the book is until I did a school visit. I didn't know how to express the theme of the book and mm -hmm. the school visit. And, and someone said, well, what, what do you think of the cover? And I said, oh, I like it. And then a, a girl, she was eighth grade, raised her hand and said, I know why they put those braids on the cover. And I said, huh, really? Tell me. And no. she said, 
Well, it's because Pandita is weaving together the past and the future and the present wow. into a braid. And that's why her braid. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. Wow. It really is the mystery of a, of a story, how a reader takes it and takes meaning out of it mm-hmm. that I didn't even know I was doing with that yeah. metaphor braid, right? Yeah, so, that's so good. And and you've been doing this long enough to not be shocked by that, you know, that, that you you do your thing and then the readers do their thing. And even something like theme, um, I think that's more the reader's business. Absolutely. The writer's business. Yes. Yes, Jonathan. Absolutely right. I, I read like that. I did not like, I mean, because I had two bossy older sisters, yeah. I didn't like being bossed around in literature. And yeah. I think that's probably why you love Flannery O'Connor so much, because there's room for the reader, right? And it's one of my missions as a teacher of writing and as a writer, and especially as a writer of faith, to uh, honor that that relationship over a story and really to leave as much room as you can for the reader, especially a child reader, right? I write for children mostly, young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to return to to the the two sisters in conflict, um, and I really appreciate the fact that both of these sisters they're they're in conflict not because one is right and one is wrong. Both are pursuing goods, and I I think that's so important in storytelling to to put two goods in opposition to one another, not just good and evil. Um, you know, every, I shouldn't say every, but that's most tragedy is not the struggle between good and evil. It's the struggle between people who are, who are trying to do the right thing and come into conflict with one another or who are, who are, who have legitimate claims on the same thing and come into conflict with one another. I don't know if you have more to say about that, but that just kind of stuck out to me when you were talking about the sisters. Wow, that's exactly right. And thank you for putting it in that that beautiful way. I felt I wanted to explore the roots of our problem with housing Uh in a more nuanced way. And often my books come at issues like this with a lot of nuance. I will never vilify a character. I try never to vilify a character that has an opposing viewpoint to myself. Because I feel that's deep work I do as a writer to try to move toward compassion for somebody who disagrees with me politically, spiritually, mm-hmm. emotionally. And so in this book, I do have a lot of nuanced characters. There's actually three factions. There's people who want to save the land. There's people who want to use the land for um, affordable housing. And then there's people who want it just to be a rural, um, big parcel homes, you know, like where mm-hmm. just as they enjoy their life, they don't want to change it. They like uh, an acre of land with one home on it. And mm-hmm. that's what all the other houses are like. And this is our community. And yeah. so, um, you know, they're resisting either affordable housing or um, historical preservation because they want, you know, and there's, we have a, I have a community like that. It's semi-rural and we have a lot of those discussions. And so I didn't, I, I created real, I worked really hard on knowing each character that I wanted to represent each point of view. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my books get critiqued for that because people want me to be polarizing. You know, oh. People want me to be not compassionate toward a character they disagree with. I wrote a story about a picture book about a border fence, our border fence between California and Mexico. 
And it's a story of a family who's separated by that border fence. So, of course, mm-hmm. yes, I want compassion for that family. But the pivotal moment in that story comes when a child's piece of art changes the mind of a border patrol officer. Mm-hmm. And so I got heat from both sides for that book. There were people that thought that book was just too, you know, for lack of a better, horrible word. I hate the word woke now, but they thought the book was too like one-sided on that side because I was mm-hmm. trying to gender compassion for families who are separated by the border. On the other side, I got people who were like, why did you write a, com- a border patrol officer who was compassionate? That cannot mm-hmm. be. And so, you know, and, I, and then whenever I, and I get heat for a lot of my books because I try to do that nuanced good yeah. versus good, right? Yeah. And so, um, but as, as my husband always says, when I get heat from both sides, he's always like, good job, honey. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's right. <clears throat> the, but I get so tired of the stories, which there's the bad, you know, faceless corporate whatever. That's, and then the the virtuous, you know, I mean, especially on questions of of land use. I mean, there it's surprising how many store how many movies uh, talk about land use, but not in subtle ways, and so. And the subtlety is what I miss so much in storytelling. It's really our realm, right? We don't, and yet we're. It's gotten so heavy-handed because on both sides of the coin, there's heavy-handed didactic storytelling, especially for children. Yeah, um, and that I feel this like fire in my belly about that. Like it doesn't honor the child reader. It doesn't mm. honor the way that a child wants to approach a story it is actually is a betrayal of story when you take it and use it as a vehicle for your own as a vehicle for your own political and of course it's going to come through like dh lawrence makes it made the case that every story is political every story is didactic but you have to do the work of character building that you have to have compassion for your characters to understand why does this old geezer want to hold on to the land yeah. And if you understand the backstory of that old geezer and then what the land means to them, yeah, you can have them come into that town hall and have them be as ornery as all, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you understand his backstory and that compassion allows you to create that subtlety in the story. So, yeah, it's one of my pet peeves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love stories about California. California is such an interesting place. I'm glad you're writing about it. Um, how many of your books have been set in California? My goodness, that's a good question. Let's see. So there was Between Us and Abuela, which is the picture book I talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's this one, Hope in the Valley. My first one, of course, my first novel was, which was written. Uh, your your listeners are were probably in their cradles when I wrote that mm-hmm. one. <laughs> <laughs> then there was twelve years of rejection between book one and book two. So, um, a lot of them. I have a. I love a sense of place. I yeah. love a rich sense of place, and I have. I have a sense of place in in different um, parts of the world where I've lived, like India, Bangladesh. But when it comes to California, it's in, it's really in my bones. We came here when I was eleven and settled here, and I began to walk my hills, my oak, my oak studded hills around here, and I took in the smells, the five senses. Setting of California shaped me and formed me almost like, yeah, like another auntie. You know, uh, so the anti-California, that sense of place is rich inside me. And so it will come out of my stories and my poems and things. No, okay. I love it. Well, we, before we, I mean, we, I want to talk about Holy Night and Little Star. 
so that that was an abrupt change. I they the uh, uh but I don't know what I don't know how else to to get there. But just say I want to talk about this book for a little while. So here we are. Hey, let's let's do it. I, I'm bo- I had two books come out back to back, and I had to hit the road. So I was uh, always doing that dizzy turn. Which book am I talking about? Yeah. Where? Okay. Well, now we're talking about the other one, the picture book. Which, um, tell me if I'm pronouncing your illustrator's name right. Koa Lee. Koa Lee. Koa Lee. She's yeah. Vietnamese. She's Vietnamese. She's a Catholic Vietnamese artist who lives in Vietnam. She lives in Vietnam. That's what I thought. Uh, she made such beautiful illustrations for this. And I loved Little Tree and Mighty Wind to, to get there. Bear Tree and Little Wind. Yeah, that was another collaboration yeah. with Koa. Yeah. yeah. I loved her pictures in that too, but these are just fantastic um, of the of the planets and the stars. And um, so tell us about this book. All right. Well, as you know, I'm an outsider, newcomer to the Christian faith. Uh, didn't hear about Jesus till I was 19. Of course, uh, was very much shepherded into the kingdom of Christianity, the realm of Christianity by Uncle Jack, C.S. Lewis, <laughs> the Narnia books and Jeremiah yeah. Christianity. But that, um, so as an outsider to Christmas, you know, all I heard about was this rounded fellow that was dressed in red and white who came mm-hmm. down people's chimneys, not ours, but everyone <laughs> else's to get presents, you know, and uh, all the folklore around, around Christmas and Easter. So uh-huh. I, I really had a dream for a long time to write an outsider's, an outsider's view of these amazing stories. Once I realized what they really meant, Easter and Christmas, mm-hmm. and once uh, I took them into my life narrative, I was, and I would try different stories and things. And really the, um, back in the day when I started writing, the Christian book world was not open to my work. <laughs> so uh, just the, the, there's, like I said, nuance and mystery maybe is not necessarily a something that was yeah. there for that. So um, my father, as I said, was a great storyteller, but he was also a lover of nature. And wherever we went, he would always um, encourage us to be attentive and even though I speak fast, when I'm outside in nature in solitude, I take it in very slowly and deeply because my father taught us to see to the Elizabeth Barrett Browning taking off our shoes. Um, he did that for us. And so when I began to approach Christmas and Easter, I wanted to approach it from the perspective of the created order. What was the created order doing when these great events were happening in human history? And so with Bear Tree and Little Wind, I take the perspective of a palm tree and a little wind and um, and how they saw, how did the trees and the wind approach this great moment in human history? Uh, and what did it, and how could I approach them from an, uh, using them to bring my outsider's perspective in? Mm-hmm. So with Holy Night and Little Star, oh, there's the galaxies, right? And so in this yeah. book, Maker, as I call God, is inviting the galaxy to participate in a holy night. And here we have little star who likes to hover on the horizon, slow and low and doesn't want to change. Just shine for the little baby lambs. That's all she loves to do. And now Maker is talking about a big night that's going to change everything. And, whole, and little star is not sure she wants to have anything to do with that. And so... Um, when Maker gathers the galaxy and says, okay, I'm going to need you to do these, to be part of Holy Night. And he issues these invitations to the stars and the planets. And they're 
oh, so excited to be a part of this, except for little star who mm-hmm. just wants to hover low on the horizon and doesn't want things to change. But then Maker says, um, little star, and she, he keeps inviting her. So, you know, picture books have a rule of three. Yeah. So uh, three twice Maker invites her to participate in bringing messengers from afar and in joining the his holy singers to herald the, the birth. And each time little star says, no, no, it's too scary. I don't want to do mm-hmm. that. And then the third time he says, now be ready, little star. I have something that's just right for you. And she's still scared. So when Holy Night comes and he invites her to, she has to decide, will she be a part of it or not? And so yeah. she accepts his invitation and the story unfolds from there. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's such a sweet little book. And I, I, uh, I love that idea of, um, of, we, we know that creation groans, creation longs to be restored. And, uh, and so I love the way that you, uh, you play that out in this in this story um, and that, that little star learns to, to be courageous and to fulfill her, her role in this big drama. So, um, but such a, such a gorgeous book. Um, I know you, before we started recording, you got to tell me about some teaching you recently did at, at for a college creative writing class. I'd love to, to hear you say, we can just repeat that conversation because it was so uh, so interesting. So you were you were a writer in residence at Calvin University in Michigan. Yes, I was uh, in September the inaugural writer in residence, um, and the English department invited me to come and teach a class. I had fifteen college students, and and uh, we were talking about the misery of grading them. I loved yeah. every minute of that month in Calvin. I was treated like I was treated. I mean, my dad is no longer on Earth. But he used to look at me like I was the most amazing person he'd ever seen. Every time I walked in the room, his face would light up. And I felt like Calvin did that for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's you know, great. This writing gig is a hard gig. And I've been around a long time. And still nobody knows who I am. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like, I'm like a little star. I want to hover on the horizon and do yeah. my little. Yeah. But, um, but I'll tell you, after my dad left the earth, I thought, well, who's going to see me like that? And, you know, husbands are all right, Jonathan. But they don't just. They don't, <laughs> They don't like my husband's face doesn't light up like a beacon when I walk in the room. <laughs> you know, when we brush the teeth together in the morning. It's not like that. So yeah. it's everything, like, which is fine. There's room for that too. But when I walked into Calvin, I just felt seen. I think it's that intersection of what I've tried to do my whole writing life, which is putting and it's it's governed by this great quote from Catherine Patterson, where she talks about putting faith in the bones of our stories. In the, in the very bones of it, not putting it on as fancy dress. And I have mm. used that quote as my North Star in my writing. And and a lot of times, you know, my stories are not maybe, some of them are faith forward. And some of them, I've tried to put how my, you know, my, my faith, which is so deep and rich and interior, into the bones of my stories. And a lot, a lot of people get that, yeah. especially faith world they want me to put it on like fancy dress and then they'll open the door for me right Mm -hmm. so for a lot of Mm. times doors in the faith world were especially because i'm indian i think they just didn't get that i could have anything to say (laughs) into the world of whatever i yeah christian world so i was fine with that i like being on the margins i like hovering on the horizon and my little gleam so (laughs) i did my work and it was very it was celebrated and received in a lot of times by people far from the faith world Mm-hmm. And even Hope in the Valley, which is, you know, it's getting a lot of wonderful reviews from people who have or would 
have never entered the door of a church, which mm-hmm. which is such a goal for me to be to have kids who are outside the church, like I was, receive my stories. And yeah. so, um, so I think that Calvin invited me because of that mission. Yeah. And that was really the first time where I felt seen in that intersection of my deep faith and my love of Jesus and my mission, which is to create stories that will lead me into the world outside the church and yeah. bring me into the hearts and minds, my stories into the hearts and minds of kids like me who were not growing up inside the church. And so Calvin saw that and celebrated that and loved me for that. And I was like, wait, mm. wait, it's the same way that my dad would see me. I felt oh, like that. It was really beautiful. Yeah, I love hearing that. Um, I was listening to David Brooks talk about his new book uh, in an interview. And he said one of the questions he has started asking people is, what was the, when was the time when you felt seen? Mm. And um, I want to start asking that question of people, too. You know. Right. And and it's one of our missions as we get older, too, is to see. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I really feel, you know, Hagar in the Bible, um, such an outsider. Right. And yeah. she gives God his first name, the first time he's named by a human being. And, you know, I don't know if you remember what he she calls him. Yeah. You yeah. are the one who sees. You're the God who sees me. And so for people on the margins, that has been a lifelong practice for me. I'm writing a book right now called Just Creativity. And it's about, it's kind of letters to, to you know, young young writers, young artists about how to persevere. Uh-huh. And um, one of the practices I'm going to talk about is the, um, the practice, the art of seeing on the margins, looking, mm. turning your eyes toward people with less power with, and, you know, with, to children, to the elderly, to people who are traditionally unseen, invisible people. It is a brilliant practice to keep informing our creativity and to keep creating and to, to continue to create fresh new art. So, yeah, I, I can't wait to read David Brooks's. Um, I don't know if he has that emphasis in it, the emphasis of, of, of seeing to the margins, to the powerless. Yeah, that's but, a good. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he has or not. I'm curious to see because it's a lifelong it's a lifelong practice of faith for me, and it's one of the ways that I've really. Um, I was just reading in Ezekiel this morning that stagnant sea, um, and the river that flows through it and brings fish and fruit for healing. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Practices that will help you as an artist when your sea is stagnant, and that is mm. one of my favorite ones, which is to see the margins of power. Interesting. Um, real quickly, you said it gave you a lot of hope, these young writers that, that oh, you told Yes. I think that's exactly because Calvin invited me because they understand my mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and these students are English department majors. They were um, upper class mostly. They chose an English major. First of all, oh my gosh, brave, right? <laughs> Everyone's doing like cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. And here these brave 15 students are like, nope, we're going to declare our major in English. And I'm like, I already love you. I was a a political science major. But um, and then uh, many of them at Calvin come from either missionary families or homeschooled families, especially the ones that chose English, I think. Mm. And you could tell, like me, that they had been voracious readers Mm. as children. And that their imaginations had been informed by a lot of a lot of stories, because when they wrote for me, and they wrote, um, I, I used uh, "Save the Cat" writes a novel mm-hmm. as my, um, and we they wrote a an, a catalyst scene, they wrote a midpoint scene, and they wrote um, the darkest moment, the all is lost scene, 
and they and they had a chance to write the draft and then revise them after we met one on one after I read their work. And so um, the drafts were good; they were great. But then, you know, when I gave them feedback, oh my goodness, they took the feedback so humbly because they cared about craft, right? Mm-hmm. And they wanted to put their stories. And they just went to work and the final scenes were, they they got it. Like they got that intersection of place, people and plot that I, in the moment scenes where you set it in a place and you you move the plot forward and you use dialogue. I, I mean, I did some of my my hard workshops that are advanced writers, I, I give for advanced writers and those kids mm-hmm. took it in. I think it's because they were read to. So I had great hope for the next generation of storytellers I from my class. And listen, students, if you're listening, to this at all. I just, it was so refreshing to work with you. So keep going, keep writing. I loved your work. <laughs> all right, Natalia. Oh, t- t- but I often end with this question. I'd love to hear your answer because um, we're running out of time, but who are some writers who make you want to write? Well, you know, I did write a book called Steeped in Stories, yeah. which was about my childhood growing up um, as an avid reader. And I talk about talked about seven of my rereads. Mm-hmm. I reread every year. Uh, in that, and unfortunately, a lot, all of the all of the authors in that book are dead. Mm. I know you love dead writers too. I don't know. There's something about being spoken to from people who came before who no longer can speak on earth. They can speak to you through stories. So yeah. in that book, Stephen Stories, I explore the seven Christian virtues, and um, you know the 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 four card the three cardinal virtues, and then the four um, other beautiful virtues that Aquinas sets out for us. Yeah. So I talk about going on a virtue hunt. Um, in stories for these seven virtues. And I, I set it up with these seven books. There, of course, there's the classic, the Narnia. I picked uh, The Silver Chair for Prudence uh, with Puddle Glum as my personification of, of Prudence. <laughs> and then um, Little Women for Temperance. And, uh, you know, I look at the vices. So I would encourage people to look at that, those seven virtues. I do that now with contemporary literature as well as classic literature because every my thesis in that book is that every book is flawed Mm-hmm. Every creator is flawed. We're having this this cultural moment where we're talking about which books and for our children and for ourselves. And if a creator is flawed, we throw the book out. Yeah. Uh, and so in this book, I set up this other practice, which I'm going to talk about also in my next book, about virtue seeking and um, how we can do that with every story. And as a reader, because readers have power over the story, we can leave. We can leave being in control of that of the the way the story interacts with us. And a multi-storied child, I make the case in that book, yeah. most powerful creature on earth. <laughs> I was a multi-storied child, so no story was had power over me. I had power over the stories, and so that's what I encourage readers to do: is cast aside fear as we approach this cultural moment of fear over stories, and lead our children boldly into becoming multi-storied children. So that and that's what I do, and so my. Go back to your question. I reread seasonally, and you can find all my favorite reads in that book, Steeped in Stories. All right. Vitaly, I love talking to you. It's so fun to, to spend a little time together. So thanks for being here. Same. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me back. It's such, an, it's such a privilege and honor. Thank you. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. <laughs>